Our scripture reading this morning is from John 1, verses 14 through 17. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is the word of our Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can be seated this morning. So this morning we start a brand new series here at Pittman Park um, called Parenting in the 21st Century. Now I know there are some of you in the room who are like, wait a minute, hold on. I finished my parenting in the 20th century, right? That's, that wasn't that long ago, maybe 25 years ago. Let's be honest, parenting is not one of those things that really ever seems to end. And so for the next few weeks, I want to talk to parents and grandparents and future parents and aunts and uncles and cousins or anybody who feels the weight and the responsibility of equipping an infant, a child, a teenager, or a student or young adult for life. That's all of us, friends, right? That's all of us. We as followers of Jesus all have a burden for the next generation to see them raised up in the faith, raised up in the church. So we're going to talk about parenting for the next few weeks. Now, I know that's a tough topic because the way we parent touches so many places in our lives. There's so many places where we're vulnerable and could be wounded, but I want you to be brave this morning and let's go there. I hope throughout October that you'll stick with us uh, throughout this series as we talk about this important topic and how faith can inform the way that we parent and raise up the next generation in the faith. One of the things that uh, Stephanie and I have embraced in our family is a saying that Andy and Sandra Stanley share in their book, uh, Parenting, Getting It Right. It goes like this. It's very simple. You've probably heard some variation of it before. It's not really new, but it goes like this. The days are long, but the years are short. The days are long, but the years are short. It's so true on the front end. When you first have kids, you feel like you have plenty of time. Like you have plenty of time, then you blink and they're, they're 10, right? And what happened? Where did those years go? And soon they're graduating from middle school after that, and then they're going to their first homecoming dance, and there's all sorts of things going on with that, but maybe that's just my, maybe that's just what I'm dealing with, handbell choir, Wesley Ringers, maybe that's just me. Then before you know it, they're gone, Right? They're off to college or off to their career, and you think, oh no, are they ready? Are they ready for what happens out there in the real world? Did I tell them everything that they needed to know? And friends, the answer, if we're really honest with ourselves, is no, you didn't, right? You got most of the essentials, and that's understandable because you were busy parenting, right? And parenting's a hard job doesn't matter what age you find yourself raising children or grandchildren in or, or children of any age. Parenting is always a tough season. 
Like most first-time mothers and fathers, I'll never forget the moment when um, we came out of the hospital with the nurse. You guys remember this moment if you've had par- if you've had children, right? You come out of the hospital and there's a nurse with you, and uh, you've got the baby, and the nurse takes the baby and like makes sure that you have a car seat. You remember this moment? They make sure that you have a car seat. Then they kind of show you how it works. You put the baby in, and you you click the little things together, and they face the wrong direction um, because they're too little to face forward in side of the car and then the nurse steps back and says bye (laughs) do you remember that moment right (laughs) yes yes Uh, yeah I remember that moment because it was suddenly like wait we have to take care of this thing by ourselves right like we have to take care of this child by ourselves what are you thinking what are we thinking surely nurse you're coming with us. What if we do if we get it wrong? How do we manage to get it right? Then it, it dawned on me reflecting back on that moment. Just because I have a parent doesn't mean I know anything about being one, right? Just because I have a parent doesn't mean I know anything about being one. And just because I was a kid doesn't mean I know anything about raising one either. But that nurse After making sure, again, we knew how the car seat worked, she just stood there and waved goodbye with that knowing look on her face, and somehow we managed to figure it out, but not on our own, right? Stephanie and I, we were always looking for good parenting advice, uh, whether it came from books or videos or experts or, or other parents. We watched people because, you know, we have that privilege as pastors in the church. We get to watch people. So we watched parents, and, and some of them we said, ooh, we want to do that, right? We want to do, do it like them. And then, then other parents we watched, and we were like, nope, not like that. We don't want to do it. Don't want to do it that way. We saw good examples, and we saw bad Examples. We saw folks who had healthy relationships with their teenagers and who weren't shy about inviting them to lunch. And we wanted to learn how to do that. We wanted to know how parents raised up their children. And most of the time, when you sort of ask any parent, so how did you do it? They'll shrug and say, I don't know. We just loved our kids, we just loved on them. But because we had been watching, we knew a little bit better. And here's some things that that we learned along the way. The parents that really had a strong relationship with their kids, they tended to have fewer rules than the parents whose kids were always in trouble for breaking the rules, right? It seemed like those families, that the reason their kid was always in trouble was because they were always breaking arbitrary rules around the house. Another thing we noticed is that these parents, they're not afraid of their children. They didn't fear their children's rejection. They weren't afraid to discipline their children, but they generally didn't discipline their children in the traditional ways, and we'll talk about that in a few weeks. They were parents who discovered and encouraged their children's interests, their strengths, and their talents, rather than forcing them into something or insisting that their children embrace what was most interesting to them or what came naturally to them as parents. They didn't make their children, you know, try out for the football team. Another thing we noticed 
is that they resisted the, te- the temptation to involve their kids in everything. Now, there's seasons in parenting where your children are involved in everything, and that's a season that we're in right now, right, Stephanie? Beginning at, at 1.45, um, our afternoon, it sort of explodes, right? Because you have to be in the pickup line at, uh, at Julia P. to get Lily Grace at 2 p.m. Because if you don't get there at 2 p.m., you can pick up your child at 5.45, right? That's when they will be ready. So you have to be in line at 2 o'clock, but then at 3.30, she has uh, piano practice here at the church, and Addie has gymnastics practice. Oh, by the way, you got to pick her up at the high school and get her over to the gym. And as soon as you get her there, you have to come back and get Lily Grace and get her to the tennis courts, right, out at Mill Creek. And then somewhere in there, we have to, like, spend time with them and cook dinner or buy dinner. (laughs) We're in one of those seasons where we're sort of everywhere all at once, but it's just a season. There'll be a time when that slows down. One of the things we noticed about parents who were doing really well with their kids is that they prioritized, excuse me, they prioritized relationship over experience. They wanted to to have important relationships with their children and not just experiences with them. Then there's one other thing that they all seem to have, and that was healthy marriages. Healthy marriages, excuse me. Not perfect marriages, but healthy. Now, for some of you, that last sentence that I said was the moment when you said, all right, I'm done taking notes. I'm not going to listen to this anymore because a healthy marriage uh, is not a part of my story. It's not a part of our family's story. If a healthy marriage is part of the parenting equation, if it's that important, that's no good because brokenness and dysfunction is very real in my story. Because of that reality of your life, the reality of your situation is not ideal, it's less than ideal. But parenting and marriage, they go together. But it's tough to talk about that. It's tough to talk about it because... It'd be much easier just to say, you know, parenting exists in its own little sphere, but how we live and lead as parents of our children does make a difference in how they grow and whether or not they thrive. Parents, you've got to know that your marriage, your health, its its function, its dysfunction, it all affects your children. It affects our children, which brings us to the uncomfortable tension that I hope we can get to this morning, and that's the tension between the real and the ideal. The tension between the real and the ideal. I want you to help me out this morning. If you'll lift your hand in the air, your left hand in the air, and say, the real, and your right hand, and say, the ideal. All right, there's a reason why your hands aren't together, okay? It's because there's always tension between what is real in our lives and the ideal for our lives. And that tension is uncomfortable because often what seems ideal is out of reach for us. And so we often get comfortable just putting the ideal out of sight, hiding it away and saying, you don't understand, my life is like this and that's gonna define all of who I am and all of the future for me and for my kids. But to ignore reality and to ignore the ideal doesn't, doesn't help us, friends. To ignore reality is to speak in a way that doesn't take into consideration real families and real family dynamics 
that actual people are actually navigating. It leaves the impression that the gospel and the message of Jesus has no bearing on life. To ignore the current reality in your family leaves us with a static stained glass version of religion that's really removed from reality. If we do, church, and sermons become nothing more than reminders of somebody else's reality. If we ignore reality, we'll set up standards that we'll never attain in a world that no longer exists, if it ever really existed in the first place. For any sort of teaching on parenting to be relevant, we have to take into account what's real, and that should be easy for us as Christians. It should be really easy for us as Christians, because all you have to do to see real families with real brokenness is to open up your Bible. You know this, right? Think back on the stories of the great families in Scripture. Adam and Eve. I heard somebody give up. Mm. Adam and Eve, right? We're in this mess because of their actions, right? Adam and Eve took a bite of the apple of that forbidden fruit and suddenly sin enters into the human story. Their kids, not great examples, right? Cain kills Abel, right? Okay, fast forward from them. How about Noah? Noah is righteous unlike any other people on the earth. And so uh, Noah is, is commissioned to build an ark and the world's going to be saved through him. And no longer than a day after they'd gotten off the ark, Noah is drunk on the couch and he's embarrassed by his children. And he curses one of them. Maybe not the family we'd point to, to say, oh, they've got it right and got it all together. Fast forward to Abraham. Abraham, who receives the covenant with God and who, who, through whom the world will be blessed and he'll raise up a nation. Abraham carries his son Isaac up a mountain to sacrifice him. Y'all, there's some family trauma involved there, am I right? Like, Isaac didn't come down the mountain going like, everything's grand, Dad. It's all going to be like it was. There's real family trauma there. And that family trauma gets played out in generation after generation. Because Isaac had a broken family life, Jacob has a broken family life, and his children have a broken family life. And guess what, friends? They're all a part of our family. That's what's real, friends. If you want to see how family brokenness works, open up your Bible. Sin and brokenness is very real, and it's a part of every one of our stories. But the authors of the New Testament, instead of talking about what is, they paint a picture of what could be and what should be as it relates to family. They point us toward an ideal, and we shouldn't be surprised. They knew that if we remove the ideal from the family equation simply because it's out of reach for some of us in this generation, that ensures that it'll remain out of reach for the next generation. Part of our responsibility as parents and as grandparents is to give our kids something to aim for, something to live for, something to, to desire toward and decide toward. Now, when it comes to living and teaching in the messy middle, in the tension between the real and ideal, there was no one who was better than Jesus. Jesus was the absolute master of standing in the middle of the tension between the real and the ideal. 
He navigated and clung to this tension throughout his ministry because the gospel doesn't begin with once upon a time in a perfectly ordered world where everyone did the right thing. No, the gospel assumes sin. Am I right? I mean, I got one amen. I don't hunt for amens, but the gospel assumes sins, right? Yeah, it assumes that we live in a sinful, fallen, and broken world. The gospel assumes brokenness. It assumes that we'll get it wrong. The gospel assumes what is real. Jesus showed up in a perfectly disordered world where the ideal seemed out of reach for everyone. Not only seemed out of reach for everyone, but was out of reach for everyone. That's why the gospel begins with, for God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. Which world? Not the Garden of Eden world, but our broken, imperfect, less than ideal world. As you heard last week when Stephanie preached from Philippians 2, God doesn't choose to remain enthroned in glory. Instead, the Son of God sets aside his glory, sets aside his power, puts on flesh, and dwells among us. He gets right into the middle of the mess with us, right into the middle of the tension between the real and the ideal, and he highlights this all throughout his ministry. He says things like this in the parables. The kingdom of God is like, and his disciples say, yeah, but Jesus, this isn't the kingdom of God. To which Jesus would smile and say things like, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Then he'd pivot, and he'd point again to the ideal. Matthew 27 and 28 says this, You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. Now, when Jesus says this, everyone in the audience, everyone in the crowd begins shaking their head. Yeah, Jesus, that's in the Old Testament. We know where that comes from. We've heard that before. Then Jesus says, But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman or a man lustfully has already committed adultery in their heart. To which someone in the crowd surely said, "Uh, Jesus, we didn't hear that. (laughs) We hadn't heard that before. And honestly, Jesus, that makes me feel bad about myself, so please don't say anything about that anymore. That's unrealistic. But Jesus, he kept saying things like that. He always pointed to the lowest common denominator, excuse me, beyond the lowest common denominator, to the ideal. He gave people something to aspire to. And when he bumped into regular folks like you and like me who fell short, unlike the religious leaders of his day, he didn't condemn them. Instead, he condemned the condemners. And then get this, Jesus died for the condemned. He died for the condemned. Instead of lowering the standard, Jesus turned up the grace. He redefined adultery and made every man and woman an adulterer. Then he paid the price for our adultery. When the religious leaders attempt to trap him with his own words during a discussion regarding divorce, Jesus raised the standard of marriage so high that he shut the door on a person's freedom to wiggle out of their responsibility to their family. In fact, Jesus raised the bar so high after he finished talking about marriage and divorce 
the disciples say in Matthew 19.10, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better that we should not marry. They were saying, Jesus, you make it sound so permanent. That's so unrealistic. Things happen. People change. To which I'm convinced that Jesus would have said, I know. I know. And that's why I'm here. So you're against divorce, Jesus? Yes. Of course I am. It hurts people. So what are you going to do about divorce people, Jesus? I'm going to give my life for them. I'm going to give my life for them. Y'all, this is the tension and the beauty of the gospel. This is why if you've wandered away from the faith, I think that you should reconsider it. Because Jesus never dumbed down the truth and he never turned down the grace. It's one of the primary characteristics of Jesus. He never dumbs down the truth. And he never turns down the grace. John, who knew Jesus well, who wrote the Gospel of John, said one of my very favorite things about Jesus. Looking back on his life with Jesus, the time that he spent with Jesus, following him as his disciples, having watched him deal with real people and real messiness and real life situations where there were no quick answers or easy solutions, John said it was remarkable to watch Jesus. Day in and day out, Jesus pointed to God's ideal while embracing the reality of what people were facing, living with and living through. As an older man, looking back on his time with Jesus, John summarized it with these familiar words. They come from John 1, 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God showed up in human form and moved in with us for a time. I love the way Eugene Peterson says it in the message that God set up a tent among us. He tabernacled among us. And then he goes on and he says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. And this next part is the best part because it summarizes the kind of disciple and the kind of Christian that I want to be. If you've lost your faith, perhaps nobody has ever told you this next part, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Y'all, Jesus wasn't the balance of grace and truth. He was a full dose of both. Jesus is all grace all the time. Jesus is all truth all the time. He didn't dumb down the truth and he never turned down the grace. I want to be that kind of a Christian where everyone that I meet sees grace first and can learn the truth of God. Truth without grace turns us into pretenders and hypocrites. Grace without truth creates permissive version of faith that hurts everybody in the end. Grace and truth together, though, are powerful. And John wraps it up in verse 17 this way by saying, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Friends, I hope that we can be a church that balances, no, that doesn't balance grace and truth. That is all grace and is all truth.
that is all grace and all truth, that we stand out from the rest of our culture because we're not one or the other. We are both and we're doing our best to follow our Savior who lives in the tension between the real and the ideal. That says, yeah, I know this is what's going on in your life. I know this is the brokenness that you've inherited or you've stumbled into or you walked into willingly. But I know someone who can offer you so much more and so much better. Who will meet you right where you are and walk with you into his presence. Friends, it's good that every once in a while, in our lives and even in our parenting, we come back and look at the real and the ideal. And we figure out how to live in the tension. We need grace. And we need truth. We can't have one without the other. Parenting, friends, first and foremost, is about preparing our children for their future. It requires us to cast a compelling vision of their future and to show them who they could be and what they could be and should be regardless of where our lives have taken us. We need to cast a vision for them, academically and financially, spiritually and relationally. Our shortcomings as parents, the reality of our situation, shouldn't ever keep us from saying, hey, you can have it better and do it better. We can always point toward the ideal, even as we live in the real. So while we navigate what's real, let's not give up on the ideal. Let's instill a dream in the hearts and minds of our children and the next generation that positions them to live better lives and maybe make a better world than the one we're living in right now. Let's resist the voices in culture that have the potential to steal the dream of family from us and from our kids. There will always be a tension between the real and ideal. Don't resolve it. If you do, you'll lose something. Instead, live in the tension. Deal with what's real and point toward what's ideal. After all, Jesus came among us full of grace and truth. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we are a broken people. On our own, God, we, we though we try, we fail again and again. It's only by your grace that we are saved. We pray, God, that as we lean into your grace, that we become more and more convinced of your truth, that you so love the world, that you put on flesh and came among us, that you died on a cross for us and for our sin, and that you rose to life, that the barrier between us and eternity, and eternal life with you and in you would be torn down forever. Lord Jesus, as we live in the tension of this life, help us to fix our eyes on you. For you are the author and the perfecter of our faith. You are the one who holds us in your hands, and you guide us in to the good future that you have for us. This we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord, the one who is full of grace and truth. Amen.